take your Bibles today and let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We'll continue a short series we started last week called The Magnificent Magnificat. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray once again as we approach this wonderful passage. I pray, Lord, for your help. And I pray, Father, for your guidance. Pray, Lord, that you'd fill me with your spirit and help me today to preach clearly, accurately, practically, rightly. May I say everything that needs to be said, say nothing that ought not to be. And I pray, Lord, most of all, you would just be our teacher. The Holy Spirit would speak to all of our hearts today, that you'd give us ears to hear today. And that these wonderful words, first, first said by Mary, so long ago, would speak to our hearts today. Bless, we pray. I pray that every person who's here today hears just exactly what they need to, and uh, that you speak to each heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Last week we started talking about this magnificent, magnificent, magnificat, that's kind of hard to say, And we asked Mary a couple of questions. We asked Mary the question, what had he done to you that brought such rejoicing to your heart? And you remember she mentioned three things, and you can see them there in those verses. She said, he has regarded me. She said, he has established my future. He's given me a future, and he has done great things. And of course, as we looked at that last week, we saw that the same is true of us. He has regarded us. He has established our future, and he has done great things. For all of us. But I would put to you this morning that there's a more fundamental question that I want to ask Mary today. And that is who, Mary, who is this person that has regarded you and established your future and done such great things for you? Who is he? Who is he? And what is he like? And I think if you look at that, you'll notice she says again three things. Number one, he was mighty. Number two, he was holy. And number three, he who is merciful. Let's notice those three, just for a few moments this morning. Look at verse number 49 again. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Who is it, Mary? He who is mighty. Now that word mighty in our English Bibles is a translation of a Greek word, dunatos. And it basically means possible, able, capable. As I looked that up and as I thought through that, I thought, well, you know what, that's not very satisfying to me. Those definitions don't seem to right, do it for me. We get the word dynamite from that word. And so I thought, you know what, I, I, I think that maybe it's a little bit stronger word than we're getting from those. He is the one who is able. He is the one who is mighty. He is the one who possesses a might like dynamite. That's what she was saying there. Now, of course, there's many in our day and many down through the history of mankind who have all thought that might apply to them. 
There have been plenty of self-deluded fools down through history. People like Pharaoh, Herod the Great, Hitler, and others. Even some in our day, no doubt, who think that that word applies to them, who consider themselves invincible and mighty. But my Bible tells me that God laughs at all such self-proclaimed might. There is no such thing. Psalm chapter 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Nah, we're not talking about that kind, that self-proclaimed stuff. No, we're talking about the only one who can rightly be described by Mary's words here. And there's only one, and that's God. Only God can be described as the one who is mighty. Only God is the one who can be described as the one who has done great things. We talked about it a little bit last week, but Mary didn't have to look very far, did she, to see that was true in her life. She didn't have to look very far to see evidence of he that was mighty. All she had to think about was the babe that was developing in her womb, growing, eventually beginning to move. (laughs) She would have had ample cause, would she not have thought, he is mighty. There's a Christmas movie that my wife and I like to watch every year. We have several that we like to watch. It's ritual, you know. You have to watch the certain things every year. And there's one that we watch every year, at least once, called The Nativity. And I don't know how many have seen that movie, but it's, it's just a, a very nice, beautiful movie about the nativity. And there is a scene in there that almost never ceases to make me want to cry. And it's the scene where Mary, for the first time, she's with Elizabeth, and for the first time she feels the babe move inside of her. And she calls Elizabeth over. Elizabeth comes running over, and as Elizabeth comes running over, the babe and her, John, begins to move. And there's a scene where they're both holding their hands on the other's belly and feeling the baby move. And I'm thinking, how astonishing that moment must have been. What an amazing thing to have thought what God was doing there. Now, she didn't have to look very far. But if she had given a moment's thought, and if we would give a moment's thought to the things we know about the Bible, we'd know that the might of God has been seen in so many other ways. There are so many examples we could go to in Scripture to show that He is mighty. Well, we could go to Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's about as mighty of a thing as can be imagined. When I think about the fact, once in a while I'll do this, and you probably do it too, you go out and just stare up into the sky and look at the stars. You think about the fact that God, with a word, with a thought, flung them into existence. It did not take him millions of years, as some fools would tell you today. It took him that long, and every one of them was there. Every one of them. Peer through the depths of the Hubble telescope into the... It's ever-reaching deeper and deeper and deeper. And you, you can go out on, and you can look on YouTube and you can look in various different places online and look at the pictures that are being produced by the Hubble telescope. And the deeper it looks, the more it sees. It's astonishing. And when you look at it, you cannot help but cry out with the psalmist, the heavens declare the glories of God and His might. His might. What about things like the parting of the Red Sea? Moses and the children of Israel, their backs against the Red Sea, thinking it was a hopeless, horrible situation, and Pharaoh and his hordes was descending upon them. And God, with the word, departed the Red Sea, and they were delivered. My God is mighty. He is mighty to deliver, even from the greatest power that might seem to be on the earth. 
And not just at a national level. You could go to the Old Testament and look at things like the story of Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the burning, fiery furnace, or, or David facing down Goliath, and you'd find out that our God is mighty to deliver, not just on a national level, but He can deliver me. He can deliver the individual from whatever the enemy might be at the time. Oh, Mary could have looked at all those and given her ample evidence to say, He's the one who is mighty. You know, Mary didn't have the New Testament. But you know something? We do. And so we can look at the New Testament and we can see even more examples because we can look at Jesus Christ. My Bible tells me no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son has declared Him. He demonstrates God to us. He shows us what God is like. When we look at Jesus, we're looking at God. And so when we look at the mighty things Jesus did, we're seeing He that is mighty. Think about the things Jesus did. He showed might over disease when he healed the lame and the deaf and the blind and the leprous. He showed might over death. Widow of Nain raised the son. Lazarus, those of us who went to Israel a couple years ago and who will go back in, in, a, in another few months now, and you can still go with us. And those of us who went will stand and look down into a hole in the ground at Lazarus' tomb. And we'll imagine in our minds the time that Jesus stood there and said, Lazarus, come forth. Power, might over death. He demonstrated his might over nature. Astonished the disciples as they sat in the boat. And the wind and the waves were whipped up. And Jesus said, peace be still. And instantly it calmed. That's an amazing thought. Power, might over nature. He claimed and showed his might over sin. When he would say to people, your sins are forgiven you. And he claimed and proved that he had the, the power, the might to save you. And to save me. And, of course, this Christmas season, it's that last one we ought to most be in awe of, don't you think? He's mighty to save. Isaiah said it well. He said, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And so can we not say this morning with Mary, he, is, he that is mighty has done great things for me. The psalmist said, also your righteousness, O God, is very high. You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you? O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. Jeremiah chapter 20, but the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. He that is mighty. We've sung Hezekiah Walker's little chorus so many times. Here, you probably remember it. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. Anselm of Canterbury said, God is that, the greater than which cannot be conceived. Think about that quote for a minute. That is a great quote. Think about that. God is that, the greater than which cannot be conceived. Oh, he is mighty. He is mighty. Clement of Rome said, Brothers, the God of the universe has need of nothing. He is mighty. And so I ask you this morning, what's on your Christmas list this year? What is it that you need from God? I'm not talking about that Christmas list that we make that's got little baubles and silly things on it that we want people to buy for us. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the real list. The list that describes what you need from God. What you want God to do for you. We all have one. So what's on that list? What is it that you need from God today? Because here's the glorious news. Here's what Mary's telling us in her magnificent, magnificat. He's able to do it. He is mighty 
There is nothing my father cannot do, nothing he cannot make, and nothing he cannot fix. There is no enemy greater than he, none that he cannot defeat. There is no pain he cannot soothe, no brokenness he cannot mend, no sickness he cannot heal, because he is mighty. And there is no soul too lost for him to save, if you would call upon him and believe in him today. So Mary, who is he that makes you want to sing and rejoice so? Who is he, Mary? And we hear her perhaps in hushed tones say, he who is mighty. He who is mighty. But she doesn't stop there, does she? Look at verse number 49. She also says, he who is holy. Holy. Holy is his name. There's another interesting word. We fling that word about in church all the time. Do we know what it means? He who is holy. Holy and reverend is the name of our eternal king. Thrice holy, Lord, the angels cry. Thrice, thrice holy, let us sing. Do you know what it means? Mary said, holy is his name. In 1826, Reginald Heber was vicar of Hodnet in Shropshire, England. And he wrote a song that we have sung for years and years and years since. All the time since 1826. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. We sing it. We hear Mary say it. Holy is his name. But do we know what it means that God is holy? Jonathan Edwards said, A true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness, not with a delight in any other attribute, for no other attribute is truly lovely without this. He that is holy. And so let's think about that word. And let's think about it this morning in, in two ways. Let's think about it positively, first of all. Let's think about it negatively, because I think we can learn something both ways. Considered as a positive, when we say God is holy, we mean that he is clean, he is pure, he is perfect. How clean is God? How pure is God? How holy is God? Infinitely so. In July of 2010, Paul Crother, professor of astrophysics from the University of Sheffield's Department of Physics and Astronomy, announced that he and his research team had discovered a star they described as the brightest star ever found in the universe. Not even a welder's helmet would help you face the light from this giant the mass of the star is roughly 265 times that of our sun. But that's nothing. The brightness of this star is some 10 million times greater than the light coming from our sun. Think about that. That star is currently named R136A1. It's not twice as bright as our sun. That would be overwhelming in itself. You know, you can't look at the sun without being blinded. If you stare at it for more than a few seconds, you'll be blinded. It's not twice as bright as our sun. That would be overwhelming. It's not ten times brighter. That would be a light so bright that we can't conceive of it. It's not a hundred times brighter, a thousand times brighter. It's not even a million times brighter. It is ten million times brighter than our sun. How can anything be that bright? And yet they have found this. And one preacher, and I was reading some illustrations from one preacher, used this as an illustration. He said this. He said, thinking about this star gives us a sense of what the glorious presence of God is like. For scripture says that God is a being who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. That's an interesting illustration. But you know what? I think it falls down in one very important point. God is not a hundred times purer than you and I. Neither is he a thousand times pure. He is not even as R136A1 
is 10 million times more so. God is holy. That means he's perfect. That means he's infinitely more so than you and I. Mary got it right. Holy is his name. The psalmist said, no one is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? 1 Samuel 2, no one is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you, there is, nor is there any rock like our God. Psalm 99, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Let's think about it negatively now. Negatively, because considered as a negative, when we think about God is holy, it means he is separated from all that is not. It means he is separated from all that is unclean, impure, and imperfect. I don't know about you, but this is where I think most of us would start to get a little nervous, don't you think? Because all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know we fall far short of the standard of God's holiness. He might be holy. We are not. In Time Magazine, a fellow by the name of Les Lev Grossman wrote an article. And in that article, he said, Every year on the first Saturday in December, 2,500 of the most brilliant college students in North America take what may be the hardest math test in the world, the Putnam competition. How tough is it? Although there are only 12 questions, the test lasts six hours. And all these are the best and brainy, although these are the best and brainiest young minds our country has to offer, the median score on last year's test, now this, was, this illustration dates to 2002, but the median score on last year's test was, out of a possible 120, one. Now that's a difficult test, wouldn't you say? That's a high standard. We might even think that ridiculous. But you know, God's standard of holiness is even higher than that. Infinitely higher. So much higher that I cannot reach it. So much higher that you cannot reach it. That's why that familiar verse, Romans chapter 3 and verse number 23, always rings so true to us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know it. We feel it. We understand it. We can't reach the mark. But think about this. Jesus said we have to. He said we have to. He said it is the standard to which we must attain. Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 5. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I don't care whether or not you're carrying any other English translation of sworn. It all says the same thing. That's the standard to which we must attain. Perfection. Absolute holiness. The ESV says that you therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The New American Standard, therefore you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The NIV, be perfect and imperative, therefore as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Peter put it like this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy. For I am holy. And in other passages, we learn that God is so holy and God is so perfect that he cannot even look on, wit- on uh, wickedness, on sin. He can't look on these things. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. He cannot look on wickedness. Psalm chapter 5 says, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. So Mary had some interesting truth, and she's got a hold of some wonderful stuff here about who was doing this thing in and through her. It was he that is mighty, and it was also he that was holy. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. But wait a minute, you mentioned one more thing. 
One more thing she mentioned, and that's in Luke chapter 1, verse number 50. He is merciful. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, if we, if we had stopped at that last one, my guess is that everybody in this place would have gone out of here not feeling exactly rejoicing. I think you might have even been a little bit nervous. Does it make you a bit nervous to consider how mighty God is? It should. Does it concern you when you compare your unholiness to his holiness? It should. Are you concerned about the fact the Bible clearly says that one day you're going to kneel before him? He's going to pass judgment on your life. It should. Because as we have seen, the standard against we are judged is his standard, his holiness, his perfection. And so the slightest transgression, the least little slip-up, even what we might consider to be the whitest of little white lies, and suddenly we are disqualified. And suddenly... We're not in. We've been studying James on Sunday mornings. And James, if you'll recall, clarified this truth for us when he said in James chapter 2 and verse number 10, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Or as another translation puts that, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Now some people think that's unfair. Maybe you're one of them. Something God is harsh and petty to judge us guilty for such seemingly simple little transgressions. It seemed minor to us. They might ask, would God really send me to hell for such a thing? Is my sin, which seems so small to me and it's really not that great in really anybody's eyes, is it such a big deal to God? And the answer is yes, it is. Your sin and mine becomes a big deal when we consider who it is that we sin against. You see, judgment for a sin must be measured by the one against whom that sin is committed. Here's how one preacher explained it. Let me, let me read something to you here. He said, you, you may say, wait a minute, how can any sin deserve everlasting destruction? If God is just, how can he punish like this? Well, suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? The student is given a detention. Suppose during the detention this boy punches the teacher. What happens? student gets suspended from school. Suppose on the way home the same boy punches a policeman on the nose. What happens? He finds himself in jail. Suppose some years later the very same boy is in a crowd and the President of the United States is driving by and he jumps out and he tries to punch the President of the United States in the nose. What happens? He's shot dead by the Secret Service. In every case the crime is precisely the same, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. And so this preacher went on and asked, what comes from sinning against God? The one who is perfect and holy. Everlasting destruction. You see, if Mary's contemplation of the one who is doing these things that ended with the fact of his might and his holiness, it would be so depressing, wouldn't it? It would be terrible. We'd feel absolutely hopeless. And she probably would not have felt like singing. She might have actually felt like crying. For even Mary could not live up to these standards. But praise God, verse 50 is there. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary sang not only of one who is mighty and one who is holy, but of one who is merciful. Praise the Lord. My mother once approached Napoleon, and I told you this story once before, but it's, it's worth repeating. She once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. And the emperor said to her, I cannot pardon your son. He's committed a this offense more than once, I cannot pardon him. And the mother said, I'm not asking for justice. I'm pleading for mercy. 
And Napoleon looked at her and said, your son does not deserve mercy. And the mother wisely said, if he deserved it, it would not be mercy. It's mercy I'm asking for. And Napoleon looked at her and smiled and said, fine, then I will have mercy. And he pardoned her son. Mary sang of one who is merciful. No doubt she was thinking of the psalm she had heard so many times before. Psalm 103 that says, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. I'm sure she didn't understand all this yet. I'm sure she didn't have all this down in her mind. Her thoughts about it were probably just about as embryonic as was the child that was developing in her womb. Yet she had at least a basic comprehension that God was doing something amazing here. She had at least a basic comprehension that this mighty, holy God was not content to cast those he loved away from his presence because of their sin. No, he would rather fix them. Though his holiness could not tolerate their uncleanness, rather than wash them away from his presence, he'd rather clean them up for his presence. Rather than cast them away as lost and useless, he'd rather save them and redeem them. Was it because they deserved it? No. It was because he loved them. It was because of his grace and his mercy. You see, none of us can stand against this mighty God. All of us are guilty when judged by his holiness. No amount of trying to be good is going to suffice. None of us. Even the best of us fall terribly. So that's what Isaiah was saying when he said all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's what he meant by that. But Mary's magnificent, magnificent. Reminds us that the Savior who came into the world at Christmas time was God's solution to that problem. He's the greatest demonstration of mercy that you will ever see. Paul said it like this in Titus chapter 3. He said, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's why Mary could burst forth in song. That's the reason behind her magnificent magnificat. Because God, her Savior, was given to be the Savior of all. And it was because of his mercy that that gift to the Savior was given. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Well, I'm done. But right before we sing, right before we sing, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Mary was not done. Did you notice that I left something out? She had one more thing to say about this one who was responsible for all this, the one who was doing all these marvelous things. If you're reading along in your Bible, you should have picked up on this. And you should be reading along in your Bible anytime I'm preaching because you don't care what I say. You care what it says. So you should be looking at that. Did you pick up on it? Verse number 50, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Did you notice that little phrase in there? Those who fear him. That's interesting. She qualified that last part. There's no qualification appearing on the other two characteristics of God. She said he that is mighty. There's no qualification there. She said he is holy. Holy is his name. There's no qualification there. His might applies to us all. None escape it. His holiness applies to us all. None escape it. None are judged by a lower standard. There's not going to be any plea bargaining at that bar. All of us 
have to deal with the same level of his holiness. Ah, but verse 50, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. There's a qualifier there. Isn't that interesting? That characteristic, his mercy, doesn't apply to everybody. It only applies to some. It only applies to those who fear him. And so as I close this morning, let me ask you this question. Do you fear him? Do you fear him? That word simply means reverence. We can spend a lot of time on defining it and thinking it through, but let me just say this morning that if you would take that verse and compare it to the context of all the rest of the scripture, you'd see that it includes and implies belief. To fear him is to believe what he's saying. It implies and includes acceptance. To fear him is to accept what he offers. It implies and includes receiving. To fear him is to receive the gift. That he is offering. And so do you fear him in that way? Do you believe that the Savior born on Christmas was going to be your Savior? To offer you God's mercy. Have you accepted and have you received the gift of salvation as Jesus? If so, then you can call him your Savior, as Mary did. But if not, then you stand exposed by that bright white light of his holiness and his might. There's an old story that is told, a silly story really but fits here. Told of a man who died and went, went to heaven and faced Gabriel at the pearly gates. And the angel said to the man, here's how this works. You need a hundred points to make it into heaven. Tell me all the good things you've done. I'll give a certain number of points to each one. The more good there is in the work that you cite, the more points you'll get for it. And when you get a hundred points, you're in. And so the man thought to himself, okay, great. This will work. He said, you know, I was married to the same woman for 50 years. Never cheated on her. Never. Not even in my heart. And the angel Gabriel looked at him and said, well, that's great. It's very rare. And it's great. He said, that's worth three points. The man said, three points? Well, I attended church all my life. I supported its ministry with my money and with my service. I was faithful all my life to church. And then Gabriel said, well, that's also great. Also very rare. He said, I think that's worth a point. <laughs> the guy's eyes got real big. He said, a point? One point? Well, let me think here. He said, I opened a shelter for the homeless in my city. I fed needy people by the hundreds during the holidays. And Gabriel said, fantastic, boy, that's good stuff. I think I'll give you another point. <laughs> the guy looked at me and said, what? He said, at this rate, the only way that I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. And Gabriel smiled and stood aside and said, come on in. Let me ask you this morning. Have you received the gift of grace and mercy that came wrapped in swaddling clothes on Christmas morning? Are you saved? Are you born again? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed? In the blood of the Lamb. You can come to Jesus today and begin trusting Him right now if you have not done that. You can call upon Him. You can believe in Him. You can talk to Him. You can confess to Him right now that you know that He came because your sins were an offense against His holiness. And that you accept Him as your Savior because His mercy is your only hope. You can do that right now. Ask for the gift of salvation He offered in Bethlehem and offers to you right now in Randolph today. Ask for it. He will not refuse you. Jesus said, all that the Father 
gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will be by no means cast out. And then, then you can sing with Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior.